Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Are the old world, picturesque shores of Europe calling you? Set sail on an adventure with Avalon Waterways. Enjoy an elevated cruising experience. Avalon Waterways offers smaller ships, bigger experiences with fewer people and more of, well, everything good about river cruising. Don't just dream about quaint towns and cobblestone villages. See them for yourself and make lasting memories. Discover limited time offers today at avalonwaterways.com. Welcome to a special presentation from Lava for Good podcast. In April, many of the hosts from Lava traveled to Atlanta to participate in a live panel discussion at the iHeart Media offices about the intersection of the war on drugs, wrongful convictions, and the criminal legal system at large. We recorded the whole thing so we could share it with the listeners of this podcast and all the podcasts whose hosts participated, including Gilbert King from Bone Valley, Greg Glad and Clayton English from the War on Drugs, and our guests at iHeart, the hosts of Stuff They Don't Want You to Know, Matthew Frederick, Ben Bolin, and Noel Brown. This was the discussion that I was really looking forward to happening, getting all of these different perspectives from people I trust with their ear to the ground on this important topic. So I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us tonight for this very, very important conversation. It's presented by Lava for Good and iHeart Podcasts. We are here in the brand new iHeart Podcast Studios in Atlanta, Georgia to have this conversation. This is a multi-podcast live event. We're going to be speaking with some very important people. And I just can't wait for you to hear it. It's a conversation we're going to have tonight about a decades-long war against a concept, drugs. And it's about how that, how that war, how the attempts to win that war corrupted and completely broke a legal system and how that broken system affects the lives, the livelihoods, and the futures of everyone who's made to go through that system. So without further ado, I'm just gonna have our panelists come on out, join us on stage, and begin the conversation. Hey everyone. We're the guys from earlier. Um, <laughs> thanks so much for coming. We're very excited. This is a truly unique collaboration uh, with Lava for Good and iHeartMedia. And as our pal Matt mentioned, uh, Noel Brown and, and me, Ben Bolin, we host a show called Stuff They Don't Want You to Know. And today we're bringing together uh, like an endgame assemblers, or, 
Avengers level assembly of some of the greatest minds in the world of criminal justice reform and in the world of the war on drugs, which affects every single one of us, regardless of circumstance. So we've got some great minds on stage here. Let's go ahead and start by introducing our guest. First, directly here, we have Jason Flom. Jason, you are the creator and host of Wrongful Convictions. Additionally, you are a prominent criminal justice reform advocate. You are a founding board member of the Innocence Project. And Wrongful Convictions dives deep into some harrowing accounts of what happens when the justice system goes awry, or as some would say, works by design, right? And we just want to thank you for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me. It's uh, an honor to be here. Love being at iHeart, such a great company, great place, and really excited to share some of these stories with your audience and, and get people better informed and, and more, get them angrier, honestly. I want people to get angry and get involved, and that's what we're here for. And so, like I said, being out on your platform with your audience, it's, it's, really, uh, it's really exciting. Well, also here to help us a little bit with that informed anger that I think we're all gonna participate in is Pulitzer Prize winning author uh, Gilbert King. Um, in addition, as if that weren't enough, being a Pulitzer Prize winning author, he's also the creator and the host of the Ambi Award, which is a thing they give out for podcasts now, the Ambi Award winning podcast, Bone Valley. Um, in addition to being a prolific author and incredibly tenacious researcher, King's work on his book, Devil in the Grove, uh, actually led to the exonerations of the wrongly accused men known as the Groveland Four. Um, the podcast, Bone Valley, brings that same level level of um, investigative rigor to the story of Leon Schofield. So uh, Gilbert, thank you so much for being well, here with us. It's my pleasure this. to be here. I'm yeah. really looking forward to joining this very uh, promising and talented group up here. So. <laughs> promising. So, I like promising. Promising. A lot of promising. We're all young. <laughs> there we go. A couple of whippersnappers up here. <laughs> and rounding out our experts today, we have Clayton English and Greg Glaude. Now, you guys are the co-hosts and creators of the podcast called the war on drugs, war on drugs. Now, Clayton, a lot of people in the audience doubtlessly recognize you today. You are a prolific stand-up comic, an actor, a writer, and you, in your material, you deal pretty often with concepts of the war on drugs, and I think connect with people uh, in a way that is entertaining, but also powerful and educational. And so when, when you and Greg join up, and Greg, you're a huge criminal justice reform advocate. You are in the trenches working to refocus the legal system, right, to repurpose it uh, as to, we're gonna talk a lot about what that means, uh, but we just wanna thank you guys for coming on the show today as well. No, thanks for having us. Yeah, I appreciate real. it. That intro was a little too good. Yeah, man. I know. <laughs> we got a lot to live up to now. Card when you die. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's how they pay us the big bucks for our intro, intro <laughs> skills. No, no stress, yeah. just be perfect. I like how they didn't sit us next to each other, too. Right. I think it's like when the two kids in the class that, goof gotta on. Yeah, you yeah. gotta separate. Yeah, yeah no, it's better yeah. that way. We Trust can't us. aggravate yeah. our Wonder Twins. Yeah, we just didn't have it in the budget. But, but okay, so let's, let's get into it, right? Because we have a lot of stuff on our minds. It seems that no matter where you come from, no matter who you are, no matter what your personal feelings are like, virtually everyone can agree that the US justice system has some serious issues. Like right now, as of 
January 2023, the U.S. incarceration rate is one of the highest in the world, right? We're talking 505 people incarcerated per 100,000. And one of the big questions a lot of people have from the outside looking in without your expertise uh, is how did the U.S. find itself in this situation? And, and Jason, this is something you talk about quite a bit on wrongful conviction. Let's start with you. What's your take here? Well, we are the most incarcerated nation in the history of the world. And we, uh, we lock our own citizens up at five times the rate of Western Europe, 14 times the rate of Japan. We lock our black residents of America, black citizens of America up at a rate that is higher per capita than South Africa during apartheid. So just sit on that for a second, right? We have, th not too many statistics, I promise, because this is not a college course, but we have 25% of the world's prison population, while we only have 4.4% of the overall population of the world. So that's crazy, but we also have 33% of the world's female prisoners are in cells right now, while we're sitting here, they're sitting in steel and concrete cages in the United States. So one out of every three women in the world in prison right now is in America. And America is not that big of a country when you think about it, right? It's like, like I said, we're only like between four and 5% of the world's population. So it's, it has a lot to do with the war on drugs, mandatory sentencing. I mean, we're gonna get into it, but it's, it's gotta change. It doesn't make us safer. It actually makes us less safe. It's a failure across the board. It's a human rights disaster. And for some reason, we feel inured to this idea that we're just going to treat our own people in such a barbaric way. But it's happening right now. And, and it's, we got to bring it out into the light. So that's what we're here for. Do you feel, just a follow-up here for the group, uh, do you guys feel that this has been normalized in U.S. society? I mean, those, those statistics are pretty shocking when you hear them just like Yeah, out. it's definitely, like, most people think that if you're in jail, you're supposed to be there. Like, we were even talking about how people look at court shows now, like uh, the CSIs and the Law and Orders, they think anybody that's in that box getting questioned is guilty. So I think a lot of things are just people don't, care to realize if it's not affecting you if you don't have anybody close to you that's going through these things and you think okay well and then we vilify people on the news and the media makes things seem like okay this is what's going on this is why it's this way and people just accept it but when you really look at it and then we see it now things are starting to hit home for people and you know the suburb things that you would just look at oh well that only happens in the inner city, that only happens in urban areas. Now it's reaching you and now you're like, oh, okay, well maybe people need rehab. You know what I'm saying? Maybe it's not, you know, beat it out of them or put them in jail or, you know, so, yeah, that's just kind of... I think you hit on something really interesting talking about the cop shows and like the normalization. You know who loves those cop shows? The cops. <laughs> because it's sort of this like fantasy world of like how the system operates like in its best light no that could possibly be. Copaganda. I've heard it called copaganda. Copaganda. Yeah, there was a piece on it that I think we talked about on the podcast not too long ago. But to that point about perception, you know, on stuff that I want you to know, we hear from a lot of listeners who have various opinions on, you know, the brokenness of the legal justice system. 
but they're all coming from kind of anecdotal places, places of like, you know, observations based on someone they know or a story they've heard. Um, and you don't always get it right when you're just looking at it from one side and you know you might have a piece of the puzzle, but you're not gonna see the kind of holistic view of it. Um, Greg, can you talk a little bit about, you know, what the average person needs to understand about the large, some of the large, and that's a very big question, but some of the larger issues at play here that maybe you're not gonna get from just having a kind of anecdotal or experiential, you know, opinion on the brokenness of the legal system. Yeah, I, I think one of the things that we need to know is that the criminal justice system is one of the only organizations where the more they fail, the bigger they get to be. And they're actually use their failures to justify expanding. So, you know, I, I see like what happened, you know, after COVID, we saw, you know, significant rise in violent crime. We saw, you know, um, overdoses skyrocket into, you know, the hundreds of thousands in, in the United States. And now lawmakers are utilizing those numbers and their failures to actually solve these problems over generations to justify passing even tougher laws that are gonna exacerbate this. So overdoses increase, let's make penalties stronger. Let's do mandatory minimums for that. Violent crime's going up, let's increase the penalties. It's like, the penalties are already high, guys. Like, this is not working. And, and so you actually see a system that the more it fails, the more they're able to justify those failings with getting bigger. And I think that's something that we need to kind of like step back and look at and go, guys, we've been doing this for how long on this drug war? And drugs are getting stronger, they're getting cheaper, they're more prevalent, more people are dying. What metric are you describing that says success right now? Um, and, and, but it's up to us. We, we need to vote, we need to talk, we need to get our voices out there um, as much as possible. And so, um, yeah, I think that's kind of the area that we need to start talking about. Like, what are you succeeding at? And it really mm -hmm. is nothing. Um, yeah. yeah. Gilbert, in your investigations, is there anything that you'd like to add to just sort of the holistic view of what might be wrong and why people can understand that better? Yeah, I mean, I think we're all standing or sitting up here because of false narratives. False narratives have carried the day, whether it's war on drugs or whether it's these criminal justice cases, wrongful convictions. You know, I'll give you an example. I don't get into statistics, but in Florida, um, since the Supreme Court reinstated the death penalty, I think 100 people have been executed in the state of Florida. In that same time period, 31 people sentenced to death row, convicted, sentenced to death row, have been fully exonerated by DNA. That means the wrong person was sentenced to death. Now these are death penalty cases where you have a lot of eyes on these cases. These aren't just run of the mill felonies somewhere. This is one where the appellate process and, and the lawyering that happens around these cases is pretty extensive. And yet we're still getting it wrong that often. That tells you there's a serious problem. Let's, Gilbert, let's stay with you here for a second because as, as we said earlier, your work has done something powerful. It's led to exonerations, and it's due to the efforts and time you put in as, as a civilian, you know, not, not working in law enforcement yourself. What are some of your, your firsthand observations? And this is very timely right now because the subject of Bone Valley is up for parole in just a few days, correct? Right, May 3rd, big, big parole hearing. This will be his fourth parole hearing. You know, this is the, the thing, he's, he's served 35 years in prison already on a 25 to life sentence, model inmate. But the reason that he's still being denied parole is because he refuses to admit and re express remorse for a crime that he didn't commit. So that's being held against him. And his, he's been standing on a claim of innocence ever since he was arrested. And that's being used against him every step of the way. He was offered, a, this is, I'm talking about a man named Leo Schofield, who after he was arrested, didn't look like there was much of a case. The prosecutor came 
and offered him second-degree murder, which in Florida at the time, it would, have, it would have been a 12 to 17 year sentence. He would have probably served of, those, of that time three and a half years if he would have admitted to it. Instead, he just chose to face the death penalty because he was innocent and he was not gonna take this plea because he felt it would dishonor his wife. He was accused of killing. And so he did not take that plea and he's been in prison for 35 years. Um, and so this claim of innocence has been hurting his case. That shouldn't be the case. No, 100%. Clayton, in your work, um, you know, you found kind of a universality uh, or sort of a shared experience uh, in your audience. And when you explore the war on drugs in particular, um, what kind of prompted you to explore that topic and explore that universality and the idea of the war on drugs, quote unquote, sort of affecting more than just the people who are being targeted or the people who are getting convicted. It's really a cultural kind of phenomenon and has changed sort of attitudes, you know, in this country. Um, because I was getting harassed and I'd go to jail and then I did comedy and the only way to kind of deal with it was to talk about it and I would just look at the hypocrisy of what happens sometimes and I would bring up situations and just really realize it's not about these drugs that are available. It's about, it's not a war on drugs, it's a war on people. You're, the people are the ones getting crushed by it, their families getting messed up. If you go to jail, like, I'm, and now that I'm able to talk to police and hear what they actually say, like, they, they have a saying, you, you might beat the rap, but you're not gonna beat the ride. Which mm. is, okay, cool, it might not go on your jacket, but this night is over for you. Probably gonna mess up you trying to go to work tomorrow probably gonna lead to you getting fired. Now you can't pay bills. So it's a, an effect of, you're saying you're trying to get drugs off the street, but if you didn't get them in a shipment that was in the tons, what is it doing when you got $20 worth of weed from this person on the street or just things like that? And, I've, and like, you know, I mean, I, I joke about stuff, but it was things I was actually doing. Like, I would be like, I'm not going to jail for weed. I don't keep more than I can eat on me. Right. And I, I do that. that. Yeah. I see yeah. the police lights. I'm eating a whole blunt sometimes. And it's not even the police, it's a taxi. So, you know what I'm saying? Like, now, I don't know when I'm gonna be high, but that was like, that was, that was like situations that actually happened. And then like, I just take it to the stage because it, it, I know that it's gonna connect with people because if you smoke weed, you've been in that situation where you were high and you get pulled over and you're not high anymore. <laughs> it's, also, it's, it's like such a low barrier of entry to getting you into the system, right. you know? And like then you're in the system, whether you did something egregious or something laughably right. you know, minor, you're in it and then you have to pay your way out of it and maybe you can't afford to pay your way out of it and maybe then it's sort of bankrupting you and causing problems with your family and right. leading to additional problems. But that, yeah. Yeah. That's, like, that's a question that I think needs to occur more often for a lot of people, it's there is a victimization of people who are already disadvantaged and then demands placed upon them that would typically depend on privilege, right? Like who, who gets arrested for $20 worth of weed and then instantly has a lawyer, right? Not a lot of people. And, and this leads us to something interesting. This one is for Greg, we'll start with you and then we'll go to the group. You mentioned something that I know you guys talk about a lot on War on Drugs, which is the perception of the uptick in violent crime, right? And we hear this cyclically, like throughout the years, that there's an uptick in violent crime. Something must be done. We all agree there's a problem, no one agrees how to fix it. And you guys, 
Clayton, Greg, you guys have talked a lot about what solutions are. And Jason, you've done this as well, like ineffective versus effective solutions. What does that mean to someone on the outside? How, do you, how, how does that play out in the real world? Yeah, um, you know, our response always is that sledgehammer on the back end, that we wanna increase penalties and we want to, um, you know, really show, you know, get that pound of flesh and that's what gets your electorate happy. That's why people want to move that. That's like the stance of uh, typical legislators? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so, yeah. So you want to pass all these different laws and exacerbate these. And you want to put police in these situations where they have to, you know, arrest people and really get the arrest numbers up on, on drug crimes. I know like I grew, I lived in Baltimore for a while and it was during kind of the O'Malley times. And that was a big thing. Let's increase the arrest. It's going to show that we're really tough on it. Then you start thinking about it. And so, you know, you're saying, wow, we don't have enough police. Okay, so now you're wasting a bunch of time utilizing your police department to, you know, essentially harass a bunch of people like in the inner city to just get arrests on there. So that's taking a cop off the street. Um, now that's putting that person in a worse position. Um, and then they start becoming these habitual offenders because they have a bunch of drug arrests and things like that. And so that's the issue. So we always go on this back end or pound of flesh aspects instead of actually looking at what the root causes are. And when you have something like COVID happen or in 2008 when the housing crisis happened, we saw both those situations where crime went up and also drug use rose significantly. It kind of really shows the rot of the foundation of our criminal justice system, how little we've invested in these other things like the front end community servicing programs or addiction treatment, especially. We have such a lack of knowledge societally and from a government standpoint about what addiction is um, and how to actually solve it. We Addiction is so much about your social situation, the things going around you, losing those connections and trying to find that kind of fill something with that hole. And so then we throw people into a steel cage and tell them to get better. What do you think is going to happen to these people? And so this is what we continually do. And so this lack of front end, I think, treatment, removing this from the criminal justice system, putting it as a healthcare issue, those are things that actually solve it. You know, it's kind of, it's maddening when, you know, we would talk to someone, Johan Hari, we talked on the podcast, this great author, he's talked about what they've done in Switzerland and these amazing things and how crime and violent crime went down because, you know, a lot of crime is really drug related from like the fundraising mechanisms to try to get a $200 heroin habit. We don't have a job, all the things that come from that and all like kind of the turf wars and things like that that happen. And we talk about crime and crime and violent crime and there's ways to solve it and we, it's just not politically popular, so we don't care. And so it's a little, a little nervy. Yeah, I'll, I'll pause there and yeah. I'm sure some people have that, yeah. This episode is sponsored by Stand Together. Stand Together is a philanthropic community that partners with America's oldest changemakers to tackle the root causes of our country's biggest problems. Like many others who experienced addiction, Scott Strode was using drugs and alcohol to numb the pain. For him, it was childhood trauma. In his early 20s, Scott was invited to a boxing gym by a friend, and that's where he discovered the healing power of sport and community. In 2006, Scott founded The Phoenix, a free, sober, active community that uses the transformative power of sport to help people treat and heal from addiction. Scott Strode is one of many entrepreneurs partnering with Stand Together to drive solutions in education, healthcare, poverty, and criminal justice. To learn more, visit standtogether.org. We know that nothing occurs in a vacuum. And one of the things that Noel and Matt and I have explored 
in our years on our show is the the systemic issues, the problem of the connective tissue and identifying that. And that's one of the things that we wanted to ask you guys about. What is the connective tissue between uh, war on drugs and wrongful conviction? How does the situation in one exacerbate, feed, or create a, a feedback loop into the other? Because it sure seems like a change in one reflects a change in the second. Um, I'll give it to Greg after this <laughs> because he, he knows all the details and stuff. But for me, just to see like our Edwin Rubens episode, we saw somebody that was in jail for drugs that did not get caught with drugs. And I think most people don't think that. They don't realize that there's people in jail for kilos of cocaine that they never had, never got caught in their possession, never had video footage of, never been seen with it because somebody in whatever organization they in entered into a deal with the with the feds and they take this person's word for whatever they say. So it's essentially somebody higher up that knows how the system works using somebody as a pawn. And this guy didn't have a gun. He got a gun charge yeah. because they said that he did, didn't have any drugs in his house. He got charged with trafficking when it was, yeah, it's, there's no checks and balances on stuff like that? Like, is, how does that happen? Well, they take, go ahead, Greg, you tell I mean, me. <laughs> yeah, so the, I mean, all these laws that we, we passed that are for the guise of public safety, mandatory minimums, conspiracy charges, um, truth in sentencing, all these things, they're all to make the system move faster and quicker and more efficient. And it all gets back to terrible incentives that we have, because the more convictions that prosecutors get, that's the way that they rise up. The more arrests that cops are able to get and get those convictions on there, that's how you rise up in this. Everyone wants to be a good soldier. Grants from the federal government, a lot of them are based upon the amount of arrests that you're getting and the amount of drugs that you're coming in through there. And so it's all these horrible incentives that are under the guise of public safety. So conspiracy charges are absolutely terrible. We, I, we call it ghost dope. So Edwin Rubis was literally charged with 3,900 kilos that were never discovered. A guy higher than him and that had more money was able to say that guy had it on him and then he's able to get it because there needs to be a, a body because you charge this much you arrested someone doesn't really matter who goes down for this like someone needs to because i need a conviction then we just move forward it's what happens all the time that's where i see kind of that connection between what you do and you know you talked about it earlier we're talking about death penalty cases where there are multiple procedures tons of attorneys all these evidence all these definitely rules of procedure and they screwed up how often with these let alone your run-of-the-mill drug case or this and so it's this massive Every court system and every, you ever sit in a court, it's all triage. They're just triage. And there's a public defender that just met you three minutes ago, looking through your case file, I want you just to plea out because he wants to get through this case because he has 400 a year. There's a prosecutor that's being overworked and has like 250 cases a year, and he wants these to move through. There's a judge that wants to get back and have cocktails at the, you know, the whatever club with his buddies or on going to his golf kit. They need to move these through. No one wants you to actually go to trial. And when you do, man, are they gonna come at you. Edwin went to trial. Edwin said, I didn't do anything that they're telling me of. There's no physical evidence. Well, Edwin, everyone's out of prison and you're gonna be in there until at least 2033. This is how it goes. They punish you for exercising your rights. So everything actually works as planned and this is where you get those collateral consequences of wrongful convictions where people are actually innocent. Or you just get hammered with it even if you've done something wrong by the letter of the law. And so it works exactly how it's supposed to. Um, and the war on drugs has really exacerbated all this because of the massive amount of people that are just filing through our criminal justice system. And I think one more point on, on the police and the war on drugs and how that all plays out. 
it's important for people to recognize that in the past 40 years-ish, police have arrested, they've made more pot arrests. They've arrested more people for pot than all violent crimes combined. So when we think about it, and this goes back to your question and how these two worlds collide, right? Wrongful convictions happen as frequently as they do, and they happen a lot. If you don't think it can happen to you, it can definitely happen to you. The fact is that because the system has created this churn, right, 11 million people going in and out of jail in America every year, and because of some of the things that Greg just highlighted, you have a system that doesn't have time to worry about whether you actually did the crime or not. Mm -hmm. They have a saying in police and prosecutors' offices, a body for a body, right? And this is just on murder cases, right? But there's a body, there's a dead body, they gotta get it cleaned up, especially if it's a smaller town, high profile case, you know, it, they gotta clean it up. There's a lot of pressure, they got somebody, it doesn't matter. And then they get this tunnel vision, and they start ignoring obvious signs that it wasn't the person that they're targeting. And they, for reasons conscious and subconscious, they shut all that out and they just laser focus on the person who they've got in their sights and that person goes down for the crime. They're probably poor, they're probably underrepresented, they're probably, as you said, represented by, you know, in, in New Orleans, public defenders are representing 400 people, 400 cases a year, right? And courts are closed on the weekends. I mean, I'm not a mathematician, but that sounds like at least one and a half a day. Mm -hmm. Right? So, you know, a guy comes in and goes, oh, uh, yeah, wh wh what are you charged with again? What was your name? Oh, no, that's the other guy. Damn. Oh, fuck. Oh, my phone's ringing. You know, it's like, and you're going, uh, uh, and they go, I think you should plead guilty. They're not willing to offer you two years, but if you go to trial, they might hit you with, we got a case of a guy, he actually called me name, Messiah Johnson in Virginia. He was innocent, and he was offered a plea of three years. Turned it down, got 137 years in prison. How can we say you're so dangerous that you have to be in prison for two lifetimes, but also you're not that dangerous because three years is cool, just like they did with Leo, right? You're so dangerous, we're going to sentence you to death. Or when I said, well, actually, you got life, right? But the fact is, we're going to threaten you with death. You got life, which was just a stroke of luck. Or execution. Yeah, living death, right? We'll sentence you to living death. And it doesn't doesn't serve us as a society in any way, not to mention the expense. You know, David Kim, who's right here, pointed out to me that the New York City Comptroller, like I'm going back to New York City because it's where I'm from, but in New York City, it costs $565,000 a year to keep somebody in Rikers Island. At the same time, you can put them in the Ritz-Carlton, in a suite. You could send them to Harvard. With room service. Yeah, yeah. Harvard would throw that in, too, right? Yeah, they can and, stay in my house, right? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Dude, what did you do? I've stayed there. It's nice. <laughs> and at the same time, you have, you have organizations like Avenues for Justice that can take a kid who's experiencing their first serious interaction with the criminal legal system and take that kid and provide a holistic solution and they are able to sometimes talk with prosecutors and judges and get them to turn the kid back over to them. They spent two or three years working with that kid, and the kids, 91% of them, never have another interaction with the criminal justice system. They end up going to college instead of prison. So, you know, we know what works, but I don't know why we resist it so mightily. And if we were able to reduce the mass incarceration problem, then there would be time for people to actually have some of their rights and to actually, we gotta go back to those standards. I talk about this on the show on wrongful conviction all the time. We gotta go back to, because they're just words now. Innocent until proven guilty, everybody knows that, right? Everybody knows beyond a reasonable doubt, but it's out the window when you're just something to be processed. You're not a human being. After you're arrested, you're just somebody who needs to be processed into prison 
as quickly as possible so they can get to the next one. And it's not, I mean, that's, that sounds, it sounds pretty dead wrong to me, yeah. and it is. And, and if I can just, and that's where the kind of the drug war gets on it. It really is a war. We looked so much into kind of the propaganda of it. I know we all grew up in the times of like DARE and all these CBS news reports, and they made it look like they were like, you know, the villain from a war that you are fighting. And when you villainize people and you make them subhuman, you're able to do things to them like deprive them of constitutional rights, send them to prison for a long time because they deserve it, because they are an enemy. And so you're able to do all these things because of this propaganda, um, like you said, to make them just less of a person, pretty yeah. much. And you yeah. say it too, you always say, if it's a war, then you gotta have casualties. Yeah. So what do you think the casualty is gonna be? Yeah. And you mentioned it too, it mostly affects like poor people. And I, I have a thing I say, it's, it's expensive being broke. Like, super expensive. Just like, even when I was getting pulled over, it's because my, a lot of times it was because I had a rundown car. Mm -hmm. Tag lights yeah. out. Oh, you taped up the yeah. tag light. And it would just be a re, and I would see weed be the reason for why they pulled me over. Oh, we smelled marijuana. You smelled marijuana? And I was going the opposite direction. You were going with both windows up? <laughs> And I don't have any weed on me because I ate it already. How did you like? So, yeah, you know, J Jason, you're talking about some, you know, positive things that can possibly change this system. But it sounds to me like these are generational things. These aren't these are, you know, things that have to be changed through education, like of a whole other generation who will then maybe be in power and actually enact those changes. Like, can we? look at a positive spin on this? Like when we talk about criminal justice reform, what does that look like to all of you and how, is it as simple as just like legislation or is it a longer game than that? Well, we have to change people's hearts and minds first, right? We have to change attitudes and perceptions. And, you know, drugs as we've talked about are not the problem, right? Drugs, you know, at the Drug Policy Alliance on whose board I served for over 20 years, we have, we have a philosophy called harm reduction, right? Which basically says, First, you have to accept that drugs have always been and will always be a part of society, right? Cavemen did peyote. Little kids spin around in a circle until they get dizzy because they like that feeling of being out of their, you know, like being a little goofy, right? And you do it too, right? Yeah, I, I, I saw you doing it back. I was a little worried, but I figured it'd be okay. Um, but, the, uh, you know, but the fact is we need to, to accept that and then start to say, okay, what can we do to reduce the amount of harm that drugs do to society? These guys made the great point on the War on Drugs podcast about how you can say one thing for the War on Drugs. I think it was you, Clayton. We gave it a good try, right? A hundred years, a trillion dollars, and it's worse than it's ever been. I'd say, I mean, I'm not a genius, but I'd say that's a pretty great failure. And the fact is, um, so I think we do have to elect better, you know, people into office, right, who will you know, see these changes through. And the good news is, you know, when I started this, we were talking about earlier, when I started this work 30 years ago and people were like, you're doing what? Like decriminalization, that's crazy. Mandatory sentencing, what's that? I don't understand, blah, blah, blah. But now, but somebody put their arm around me, somebody who I thought was old and wise at the time, turns out he was, and said, hey kid, it takes 30 years to change anything. And I was like, well, here it is. I was 93, it's 30 years later and, and, and we, you know, it used to be you'd get cracked in the head by a cop for smoking a joint in Washington Square Park. And now you can buy it in the park, yeah. like from people who have a little booth set up, yeah, right? And they got like a little <laughs> rainbow flag or whatever. You know. Yeah, things are good, you know what I mean? And so, and I also have to say, because Clayton made that point before, and growing up, I mean, I smoked, I, I, I kind of 
thought of myself as like the Jewish Bob Marley. I wanted to smoke as much weed as him, you know what I mean? And I had hair down to, like down to here and all the way around. I couldn't even see unless I looked this way to see through the little slit in between my hair right Cousin there. Cousin style. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I always smelled of weed. Yeah. And I, because I started in the morning. I mean, half the time I was on fire, you know what I mean? <laughs> and yet I never got arrested because I was white and I lived in a zip code where they didn't arrest kids like me for things like that. So that's one of the things that informs my work is that I don't like unfairness. And it's totally unfair. I don't think anybody likes unfairness when they see it. But when it happens behind closed doors, in police stations and prison cells and places like that, we don't see it. And we need to see it. And we need to see these people as just people. Yeah. We're not perfect. You're not perfect. I'm not, I, but I also did need to go to jail. I went to rehab. And I ended up starting a business, employing dozens of people, paying lots of taxes. This, we're talking, right, about huge changes, shifts in paradigms, right, sea changes. And we hear statistics constantly. And we know, I think, the average person, again, will agree there's a problem, will not agree on the solutions often. Uh, and then they'll have the kind of party line. They'll say, like, oh, well, what I should do is just, I, I should vote, right? I should vote once every four years, I think, is how, how most people do it in the States. Uh, but when we talk about this, you know, Matt said something really beautiful earlier when he, beautiful and horrifying, when he said, you know, this, the war on drugs affects you. And it's something I've heard all of us echo, right? It doesn't matter if you do or don't smoke weed or whatever, it somehow will affect you. Is the, uh, is the reverse of that true? Does that mean individuals can somehow affect the situation for the better? If, can you affect the war on drugs? Can you affect wrongful conviction as a civilian, as just a regular person like all, like all of us, right? I didn't think you could before I did this podcast, really. Like, I just thought it was, you know, it, it's what it is. You could say stuff and you could post online all you want, but it took somebody like Greg to be like, no, like, if enough people make enough noise on this issue, then you can get the ball rolling on things. You said, what, call your legislator three times? Or it does, yeah. Three different All people start getting it moving. Yeah. It really does. Like, if anyone's ever worked at the lawmaker's office or something like that, you get a couple calls on a bill. I mean, things... It goes nuts in the in the village. They think people really care about it. I think so, like, you'd it be surprised to, to know how few people actually do that. Yeah. So when it happens, it's kind of alarming. It is. Like, oh, man, this must yeah. be really big. It's probably by design, too. Like, oh, 100%. People don't know they can't, you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. well, it's the same with convoluted laws. I mean, like, you're just not being able to drill down and fully understand. They make it that way, you know, to disempower people. But I mean, can you talk about the Eric Andre situation a little bit that you're involved in? Like, I mean, that's, I think, a good example of, like, giving a megaphone to these types of injustices. Oh, know? yeah. Um, so if you all don't know, I was I have a lawsuit against Clayton County because I was harassed at the airport. Um, just to try to give it to you, long story short, I was going, I've, this is past security. I'm at the airport. I'm getting on a flight to go to California. I'm getting on the jet bridge. This is the jet bridge. It kind of curves around. Two officers stop me. They don't stop anybody else. They ask me, can we search? We're looking for people who have drugs and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, just trying to get on this flight. And in my head, I'm also thinking, who takes drugs to Los Angeles? Like, <laughs> I think you need to be on the other flight when they come, because 
Like, it wasn't making sense to me, but that later made sense. But they, they just, you know, doing a lot of small talk and searching. And when I got on the plane, I was thinking, okay, they're going to come back on here and pull me off this plane. They're just waiting for everybody else to get on the flight. And then they're going to take me to jail. I don't know what they're taking me to jail for. I didn't have anything. But I just remember thinking that. And I wanted to say something to the stewardess. I didn't. And I just kind of took it. Took it on the chin. That's how most things happen with injustice or getting harassed. You just kind of ride with it. And... Then the same thing happened to Eric Andre. He talked about it on the Jimmy Kimmel show, and I knew him, I've worked with him a few times, so I just reached out to him, and I was like, hey, the same thing happened to me. And he was like, oh, okay. And then he reached out a few weeks later and said that he was gonna try to pursue like a lawsuit, and if I wanted to be a part of it. And we've had other people that have joined in, and one of the things that we found was, I think, 67% of the people they stopped were people, were like black people, and I think 80% were people of color, and they called it a drug interdiction program, and they took, they stopped, they got three stops for drugs, 10 grams of weed, a dude with some gummies, and somebody who had no uh, prescription pills with no prescription, and that was in eight months. But in that same eight months, they confiscated a million dollars from people getting on the plane. Of course. Yeah, yeah, uh, civil asset forfeiture, yeah. which I, yeah, and yeah, so basically they were taking money from people who didn't really, and, and it's a shakedown, because if I would've had money on me, they would've said, where'd you get this money from? We think it's drugs, we're charging the money. Do you wanna get on this flight? You wanna argue with us, maybe go to jail, or you wanna get on this flight and then you can fly back here, get an attorney and try to figure out how to get this money back. Which you won't. Which you won't, exactly, so, um, yeah, what's happening now is basically they're uh, um, they're accusing, uh, they're saying that they're you know there's no wrongdoing on their part. They're allowed to do it, um, and they're trying to get the case dismissed. But we've had more people that have joined the case, and no money was taken from me or Eric Andre. But now some of the people in the case are people who actually had their money seized. And you're so. talking about a more brazen version of, of what happens when you already get put in the system in the first place, where you got to pay for those DUI classes or whatever yeah. they might be. It's all third party, you know, right. organizations that aren't governmental. Right. They're just a company that's set up to take your money. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think the way Atlanta Airport is set up is. It's patrolled by the Atlanta Police Department, but it's in Clayton County's jurisdiction. So what it looked like to me is they were just kind of using the airport as their own little piggy bank. And okay, this person looks like they might have something. They were definitely profiling because they're like, okay, who looks like they have something? And okay, let's see if they have cash. And it was a lot of people that would be like, well, why would someone have that much cash? And first of all, it's U.S. currency. Second of all, this is Atlanta. This is a city. It's a Everything operates off cash. We got a big strip club industry, oh, yeah. big nightlife industry. We got, com I, I mean, I get paid in cash Food if trucks, I'm selling t-shirts on the yeah, day. Yeah, sure. so, yeah, just think that somebody shouldn't have cash and that it should just be taken from them, that's ridiculous to me. Well, and here comes back to like bad incentives within the drug wars that a significant amount of that revenue goes directly back to prosecutorial right. law enforcement offices. And that's actually how they raise a lot of their resume for their operating budget. So. The DOJ did a big, you know, investigation in Ferguson, Missouri after, you know, they had upheaval there. And it was, what they found was like this one incident happened and then, you know, things happened after that. But it was a lot of other foundational stuff where there's emails from the city council to the police chief saying, we need a 10% increase in revenue. What are you going to do? And now they're harassing the community members and they're actually putting cops in like these 
spots were like they're having to harass us in. And finally, when something like happened, they're like, we've had enough. And like, this is the things that start to happen. And so these horrible incentives and drug cases are the ones that bring in the quickest, easiest revenue when you're sure. able to suspect drugs on it. So that's what happens. Yeah. What'd you call it? Uh, ghost dope? Yeah, right? ghost yeah. dope. Yeah. So that's, that's another part of like what you're saying, Clayton, is describing a situation where someone is able to fight back, to seek redress what's happening yeah. and we see so many people i think again targeted because it's known they it's assumed they will not have the means to survive the length of time it takes yeah. to fight the system right so with with this in mind you know we see again this is something that can affect everyone like jason like you were saying you said and if you don't think it can happen to you it can happen to you and with this, like we've we've laid a lot of groundwork here, and you guys' shows are such deep dives from firsthand knowledge, like Bone Valley, wrongful conviction, war on drugs. I think uh, Noel, I think we open it up to the audience. So, yeah, let's get some. Let's because we can't answer the questions, but these guys in the middle probably can. So uh, that's Matt, such a good idea. Then. Yeah, I want to just make one <laughs> one statement before we do that on civil offense asset forfeiture because. Yeah. Since 2014, this was first reported in the Washington Post, police have stolen more money and property from civilians every year than all the robberies combined. Wow. And you can look that up, it's five billion to three and a half billion. And that was 2014, and since then nothing's changed. And it's because of that, because they don't have to prove a crime. They just take your money, they go, we think you might have been involved in something, yeah, prove you weren't. Yeah. Right. They don't need work. to charge you with right. a crime. You don't need yeah. to be arrested. No, right. there's no conviction nope. requirement. That, that your property. They're charging your money. They're yeah. charging so your property. So it's the state of Georgia versus a hundred uh, hundred seven thousand dollars, or in 1985 Corolla. It's crazy. There's, there's no recourse. Nope. Well, and you can challenge it a lot. Of, yeah, but a lot. Yeah, a lot of the forfeitures are such little money. They give you like a voucher or something. So yeah, yeah. 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 six hundred dollars from you. You're going to hire a defense attorney for five grand to get your money. All these right. go to default judgments most of the time. Anyway, don't people don't challenge it, and it's a very low barrier. It's preponderance of the evidence normally, which is like how are you more get, likely than not. How so. are you getting to court when they take your car, right? Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Are the old world picturesque shores of Europe calling you? Set sail on an adventure with Avalon Waterways. Enjoy an elevated cruising experience. Avalon Waterways offers smaller ships, bigger experiences with fewer people and more of, well, everything good about river cruising. Don't just dream about quaint towns and cobblestone villages. See them for yourself and make lasting memories. Discover limited time offers today at avalonwaterways.com.
Now I'd like to introduce you to Meaningful Beauty, the famed skincare brand created by iconic supermodel Cindy Crawford. It's her secret to absolutely gorgeous skin. Meaningful Beauty makes powerful and effective skincare simple, and it's loved by millions of women. It's formulated for all ages and all skin tones and types, and it's designed to work as a complete skincare system, leaving your skin feeling soft, smooth, and nourished. I recommend starting with Cindy's Full Regimen, which contains all five of her best-selling products, including the amazing Youth Activating Melody. Melon Serum. This next generation serum has the power of melon leaf stem cell technology. It's melon leaf stem cells encapsulated for freshness and released onto the skin to support a visible reduction in the appearance of wrinkles. With thousands of glowing five-star reviews, why not give it a try? Subscribe today and you can get the amazing Meaningful Beauty system for just $49.95. That includes our introductory five-piece system, free gifts, free shipping, and a 60-day money-back guarantee. All of that available at MeaningfulBeauty.com. So I just wanted to start uh, opening everybody here, being able to ask questions here with a question to you guys. I've never had to hire an attorney for a criminal thing. I have no idea what that looks like. I have no idea how to do that. I probably don't have the money to hire the right attorney to get me out of something intense like this. Are there any resources out there for someone who you know has been arrested that can look for like a pro bono attorney who would work on their behalf? Or is it we really just have to rely on the attorney that's assigned to us when we go to prison? Yeah, I'm, I'm, and I'm sure you have. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's few and far between. There, there is some, and even a public defender, if you have financial means, if you're not a, you know, below a certain threshold, a lot of the times they, you know, they kind of really can't provide one to you either. And so it's tough. There's some law firms that do some pro bono work, um, you know, on that with criminal defense, but a lot of the times it's either the public defender or you kind of trying to figure out or scrape around. I mean, it's, it's, it's tough. I mean, public defense is one of the most underfunded uh, systems that we have. And so you're already at a disadvantage going against the government and then we underfund our public defense system pretty egregiously. There's federal lawsuits all across the country on, on that type of disparity. So yeah, you're, yeah, good luck. Uh, <laughs> that's why a lot of people plead. I mean, yeah, that's what happens. Yeah. yeah, I'll just jump. One of the things that, you know, I hear a lot is that the, the post-conviction process is so daunting that storytelling is actually one of the most effective ways to change the narrative. I mean, we're all up here because of false narratives. I mean, if you look at, you know, Jason's, how many, how many people have you had on the program? Three, I think we're right. 360 something episodes right. so we, far and we'll never stop making them. And these we'll are all people who've been exonerated. So a false narrative has brought them into prison for years until something happens and they're cleared. Um, the war on drugs, you could look at that as you know, this, I remember this, just like the demonization and the, the dehumanization of people and just scaring people into thinking that, you know, black people are going to have this crack mania and they're going to have superhuman strength. We need to protect it. We need to write stronger laws. I mean, that was part of it too. And, and so these narratives that get built, I mean, I'll just tell you in, in the case with Leo Schofield, you know, at one point, I've been working with him for several years and, you know, we we're kind of done with the investigation. And he said, you know, what, what do you think is going to happen to me? And I said, Leo, I don't know. The post-conviction process, I mean, it's so daunting. Um, I, the only thing I can promise you, I can't promise that you're going to get out of prison because of this information, but I can promise you that we are changing the narrative of your story. And that's why these podcasts are so important because we can do the deep dive into a topic and actually show the truth. 
and I think that's why you see so many exonerations because if you have the storytelling aspect, whether it's lawyers or writers or journalists who can come in and sort of expose this, it's really important. And it is a positive step because I have to be honest with you, the state of journalism right now is not that great. And so when you look at a lot of these communities that are having these crimes, a lot of times the local reporters, their biggest sources are the prosecutor and the police. They don't get the other side of the story, so they just kind of repeat the state narrative. And that's how it just perpetuates and grows until some people like us can come in and look at it from a different angle and hopefully change it. You guys are really fun at parties, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> that was Ben's line, by the way, if anyone wants to. I, I, I hope up. somebody asked a question about bail reform, by the way, just saying. Oh, yeah. Hey, does anyone have a question about bail reform? <laughs> Okay, no? good. Okay, but really, would anyone like to ask a question of the panel? Hi. I just want to say I'm thankful for what you guys do, um, but what's a way that us citizens can really make a difference outside of the narrative? Because there is a larger crime that's more than the citizens. It's like the government. Like, how do you come against that when you can sell weed now, but you're not getting the people out that you got on petty crimes? Or like, how do you come against a government that is backed by the NRA? You know, like, so it's, it's big companies that pay for the media, that pay for like how things get ran, and they're also behind the government. I think the first thing is to learn what's really going on. Um, there's a fantastic newsletter. <clears throat> called Alex Copaganda Newsletter. You mentioned Copaganda. It's Alec, A-L-E-C, apostrophe S, Copaganda Newsletter. And that will give you a perspective on, I think, a lot of the questions that you're so properly raising. And thanks for that question, by the way. Um, and uh, yeah, and since nobody asked about bail reform, I'm just gonna say, <laughs> um, you know, back to the question that was posed a minute ago, you know, you better hope with your public defender that you're not in jail awaiting trial, because if you are, that creates a whole nother cascade of problems, right? If you're, think about it, if you're too poor to post bail, then you can't, not only can't assist in your own defense, you can't meet with your attorney, they're not gonna come to the jail to meet with you, they're busy. And you can't take care of your family, you can't go to your job, you can't do any of the things that, that, that you would be doing. Otherwise, jails are generally more violent and dangerous than prisons. People think that's counterintuitive, but it's true. So you're subjected to the, the most horrible conditions and deprivation. And then on top of that, and you don't see this on the TV shows, but if you're in on, because you can't post bail, and then you're being brought to trial, first of all, a prosecutor can offer you, listen, you're gonna stay here for two, three years before we get around to you unless you wanna plead guilty and go home. So you got that pressure. But if you decide to go to trial, now they wake you up around two in the morning, they don't feed you, they put you in a van, they put you in a waiting room, then they put you in a van, then they take you to another jail in the courthouse and you're held there, you're also not fed. Then by the time you get into the courtroom, you look half crazy because you're sleep deprived, you're starving, and also you've been subjected to the most brutal conditions imaginable for weeks, months, or years. Think about Khalif Browder and that whole horrible story, right? Rest in peace. But, you know, so, so the, the bail reform, I just wanted to mention this because bail reform is so misunderstood and it's so important for people to understand it. It makes us much safer. And every study that's been done has shown that bail reform decreases the probability of the person who didn't go to jail pretrial committing a new crime 
dramatically. And it makes sense because I think you were talking about it before. If you do go to jail, your problems just got a lot worse. Even if you're there for three days a week, you're losing all the things that Clayton talked about. And now you may not have a choice but to commit a crime if you want to eat or if you want to feed your kids or whatever it might be. So bail reform is one of the most successful policies that I've seen in my 30 years of doing this work. But politicians are trying, they'll take one case of somebody who got out on bail and when it hit, you know, some old lady over the head at an ATM and, uh, you know, they'll make that into a big thing. And of course, the news will report that because it's better for clickbait, right? Nobody wants to report good news stories. No one wants to report the things that we're talking about now. But bail reform makes us safer and saves us huge amounts of money. Remember the $565,000 a year to keep somebody in Rikers Island who hasn't been convicted of a crime. So that is so. then to that question, that's one of the things an average person could do is maybe in, engage with their legislators about bail reform? Absolutely. Yeah. And give a damn about your uh, local elections. Like, we can talk about president and con and they're all important, but your sheriff's elected, your district attorney's elected, a lot of judges are elected where you're at. Like, those are the people making the decisions. So you're talking about bail reform, yeah, you can be able to pass a law, but if you get a district attorney that says, this is how we're gonna handle our jails, or you get a sheriff that says that this is how we're gonna handle our jails, or this is where we're gonna prioritize resources. Like, those are the elections that don't get as much attention, particularly when they're not on a presidential cycle. Like, those are the ones you really need to care about. That's where you see that kind of systemic change happen in these areas. And so I know in, you know, in Houston, when they went through a lot of their, their bail reform stuff, like, that probably doesn't happen if there isn't certain actors in, you know, within that, that realm and, and things like that. And that's what really, really matters. Um, to a lot of this stuff. Um, you can have, I know how many bills get passed. A good example is on forfeiture. New Mexico banned criminal for, civil forfeiture. It was only criminal. City of Albuquerque just had some folks there that were like, well, I guess it doesn't, it doesn't apply to us. We're gonna continue to do this. Like, all right, well, there you go. I mean, yeah, they can have the best law on the books, but they'll be able to figure out a way to navigate around that. You can pass earned credits where you allow people to get earned credits in prison. But if you're a prison where your sheriff doesn't wanna give those out, Ain't gonna happen. So it really is that local, hyper-local elections that really matter on, on the criminal justice level. So uh, I, w I wanted to talk about uh, prosecutors in this process. Um, you guys talked a little bit earlier about kind of the way things are perceived in the media with you know police and everything being kind of pro-police. I think a lot of times there's also a perception that prosecutors, everything they're doing is noble and good. And I think that's oftentimes the case. But I'm curious your perception about the concept of like prosecuti prosecutorial misconduct, um, kind of the politics of play, the pressure they're under to secure convictions. Um, just kind of in broad terms, your thoughts on that. Gilbert, you have some yeah, good I'll perspective just, on this. Take it to uh, like a micro level. Um, I think one of the things that happens with prosecutors is, you know, their job is defined to, their, their job is not to win convictions, it's to pursue justice. And so, but you know, there's ego and career that gets involved in that. And so, you know, you want to work your way up to be chief prosecutor or maybe a judge someday. You don't want, you know, a bunch of open cases or lost cases. And so I think what happens is it, it's like every other business in terms of capitalism, you know, you have prosecutors that are winning at all costs and they're willing to cut corners. And a lot of that is that what Jason just mentioned, that tunnel vision. That part of your story doesn't fit my narrative, so I'm not going there. I'm doing my narrative, and my narrative is this. And, and that's how they get caught up in this thing. And I've talked to a lot of prosecutors who have had wrongful convictions, and you know, they, they attribute it to tunnel vision and, and the wanting to win the case. And um, so they end up making a lot of decisions that you know, 
cost people their lives, basically. And they like to see themselves as very noble, and they don't want to see themselves as somebody who's doing something, you know, frankly, there's no accountability for prosecutors. One of the things that, you know, sometimes I, I sometimes ask prosecutors to talk to me about the cases, and they, they don't want to talk to me because they know I'm not doing the, you know, the CSI type stuff where I'm going to make them look like, how'd you catch the bad guy? How'd you do it? What, what genius did you bring to the table for that? I'm asking questions about cases that went wrong. And, um, you know, they don't always want to talk to me. One of the things that is, is really disturbing about that is like, they'll say, well, we, we don't do our cases in the media. We do them in the court of law where, where like all the integrity is apparently. You know, if a prosecutor screws up a case so badly and it gets overturned at a higher court, an appellate court, the worst thing that ever happens to a prosecutor is maybe he gets called out in the opinion of that court saying, the prosecutor erred in withholding evidence that would have been exculpatory. And then he goes on and does to his next, next case, next conviction. If I was withholding evidence, let's just say like I had Leo confess to me, Leo Schofield confess to me, and I said, gee, that doesn't fit my narrative. I'm gonna put that to the side and not tell people about that. And then later on it's discovered that I was withholding evidence, my books would be pulled from the shelves. I probably wouldn't get a chance to do another story because that would be seen as such, such a horrific violation of integrity. And yet, why is it that prosecutors can do that all the time and go on to the next cases? Because there's zero accountability. And that's the thing I think that really needs to change. Couldn't you even be prosecuted yourself for withholding that kind of information? Yeah. Like as a citizen, like for yes. obstruction or, or as a defense like lawyer. Yeah. yeah. But, but as a prosecutor, you that's have absolute wild. immunity. Think about those words, absolute immunity. So nothing you do can bounce back on you. And so then, and you also have almost total power. And we know what power does to people, right? And I think there are people, I think there are cops that go into the job, very idealistic, and then they, they change. The power does something to them, right? And the culture does something to them, and the training. And then with prosecutors, they're human as well. And they, some of them, I think, go in, you know, with very noble aspirations, but then they, they become ambitious. And when they go back, you know, I have the criminal defense lawyer that I know in California, uh, Andrew Stein, he told me that he, sometimes in his closing argument, he'll say to the jury, when the prosecutor goes back to their office for, you know, tonight, this afternoon after they finish the case, no one's going to ask them, did you do justice today? They're going to say, did you win? And that's what they want to do. They want to win and it becomes a game. And the problem is they have the ability to, 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 mess with, to mess with people's lives to an absolute extreme. And when they do that, and prosecutorial misconduct is one of the leading causes, you'll hear it again and again on the Wrongful Convictions podcast, it's one of the leading causes of wrongful convictions, police prosecutorial misconduct, also lying, forensic people, et cetera. But the fact is that they're incentivized to do that. And they're given the power, even with Brady violations, like Brady is Brady versus Maryland, a very famous Supreme Court case, which says that prosecutors must turn over exculpatory evidence to the defense. But they get to decide what they think is exculpatory. So the wolf is literally guarding the hen house. Mm -hmm. And when they, when they get, like I said, they get set, they're just gonna go and they're going to, and, and the last thing I'll say on this subject is, we should all care about this because when prosecutors frame an innocent person for a crime, sometimes they knew, let's face it, they knew they didn't commit it. We don't like to think about that, but it's true. It happens, listen to the podcast. If you haven't already, you'll hear it again and again. They are actually acting in service of the actual perpetrator, right? That, those forces, 
of police and prosecutorial power are focused on protecting the person who committed this heinous crime. Because almost by definition, when you lock up the innocent guy, mm -hmm. you're letting the guilty person remain free. You're becoming an accomplice. Well, or you are worse. Guys, I just want to say thank you so much for this conversation. Uh, it has been, it, it's been like heavy, right? Really heavy. This is serious stuff. But you guys know, you know what you're doing and you're exploring this every day on your podcasts. So as you said, Jason, I think the best thing everybody can do here is subscribe to these podcasts, to Wrongful Convictions, to The War on Drugs, and to Bone Valley, and even stuff they don't want you to know. Yeah, you can subscribe to us too. That's fine. We're not above it. Oh, yeah, 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 sure. We, we talk about these <laughs> it's things. It's a good show. Check it out. <laughs> <laughs> but really, thank you guys. Um, I think we're going to end the show now. Yeah, seconding that, man. This yeah. is an incredible conversation. Yeah, thank you, know, you to Jason, truly. to Clayton, to Gilbert, thank you to Greg, and Great thank job. you, folks. Great job. Thank you so much. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Are the old world picturesque shores of Europe calling you? Set sail on an adventure with Avalon Waterways. Enjoy an elevated cruising experience. Avalon Waterways offers smaller ships, bigger experiences with fewer people and more of, well, everything good about river cruising. Don't just dream about quaint towns and cobblestone villages. See them for yourself and make lasting memories. Discover limited time offers today at avalonwaterways.com. I'm so excited to tell you JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. What I love about Walker Hayes is his laid-back nature. He's a family man and being a country megastar while also having seven kids. You know he likes to keep his style cool and casual. This new collection is perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th. Just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count.